Hello and welcome to A Week in Politics. We're into episodes 15? 15 now, isn't it? Yes, 15. Oh, we're flying through the episodes. Uh, and we're on a roll. And this is a very special episode we've got lined up because our special guest this week, later on the podcast, we'll be interviewing the one and only. She needs a new introduction. It is the one and only Natalie Bennett, former leader of the Green Party in 2015. She went into the uh, election 2015 as the leader of the Green Party. She'd be debated David Cameron, Ed Miliband. She's got a wide range of issues on climate change. And that's what this episode's about. This episode's about the climate change. It's a big news at the moment. So, um, of course, before we start the, the news of the week, uh, we're going to obviously introduce my uh, co-host today, Albert Odysseus. It's great to have you on as usual. How are we doing today? It's been a, a busy week in politics with Brexit and everything going on. It's, uh, the news is, is flying our way for the podcast. What do you think, Albert? Yeah, it's good, good to be on the podcast. Yeah, there's been lots of interesting developments this week. Looking yeah. forward to talking about some things. Yeah. And Odysseus, uh, how's it over in Greece? Are you, uh, are you surviving? Well, you know, I mean, I'm very worried at the moment because today, you know, everything had been very calm for a week or so. Cases have gone down. Now they've shot up today. We've hit a new record. So I'm in a very nervous state over here. Yeah. But what else could soothe me better than a podcast? Yes, well, exactly. Well, as long as you're staying safe for our listeners so you don't miss it out next week when we've got a very special guest. But obviously that will have to wait till our social medias. But on with the episode, before we interview Natalie Bennett, let's talk about the news of the week. And the, the news that caught my eye was obviously past few weeks we've had uh, – protests uh, which have gone out of control with Extinction Rebellion, who uh, are there to raise awareness um, on the science behind climate change and really raise the awareness of, of announcing a climate crisis. And it's got bad. There's been 300 arrests. Uh, they printing the freedom of press. They're, they're trying to attack that. Uh, Albert, what do you make of this? Because for me, I think it's, well, I'll go into what I say after what you, what you do. What do you think, Albert? Well, I am completely 100% sympathetic with the, uh, uh, ideas that these camp the people campaigners are going for. I think that uh, obviously climate is one of the biggest crises that we have at the moment, apart from possibly coronavirus, um, is something that really does need to be addressed. What I would say, however, is I'm questionable about some of the means that they've had. I think that a lot of the kind of protests that they've had, where they're blocking streets off, blocking printing presses off, as you said, happened this week, uh, are more likely to just sort of antagonize people and irritate people rather than win people over to the cause potentially because like with the example with the printing presses one you are you know you're preventing people from going to their jobs you know and like doing things that they're trying to do because you know at the end of the day you know it's not their fault what the sun writes or you know they're just trying to print the newspapers so that's why i think i completely agree with the kind of things that they're arguing for but not sure about the means Mm. Odysseus, what do you think of the Extinction Rebellion? They've surely taken it too far this time. Well, I'm not really sure, to be quite honest, because at the end of the day, I think that in many ways, if you were to look at the general global response to global warming and Boris Johnson's response, you know, early response to coronavirus, I'd say that they're very similar. In both cases, it's clear that there's an issue that's going to be a, a huge problem will probably dominate the world's, uh, you know, issue, will be the biggest issue in the world at a, at a point. Uh, but for that moment in time, it wasn't really affecting it in this country, many other countries. Um, and because of that, there's this, you know, people basically, they're doing a little bit, they're pretending that they sort of care, but ultimately it's not even close to being a sufficient response. Um, and every other means has failed. Arguing for elections has failed. Uh, peaceful protesting has generally failed. Um, and at the end of the day, I think if there would have been this kind of protest about coronavirus, I mean, hypothetically, it's obviously coronavirus is spread 
some of my protests, but if something like this would happen and we would have avoided all the deaths that eventually happened, we'd probably all be quite grateful. Um, so I, I do in some ways actually sympathise a lot more with them because, you know, no one's doing anything now and they're not doing anything, you know, anywhere near enough. So I think that a really provocative issue is something, yeah, a provocative reaction could potentially make changes desperately needed. Mm. We see, see, I sympathise with Albert's view. I do think that the reasons and the motivations behind Extinction Rebellion are accurate. You know, I sympathise with them. It's a, climate change is a huge issue, which, as Otto Sayer said, will dominate uh, the politics for years to come. And it, it's going to be a, a big issue. But the way they've gone about it is wrong. It's, it's changed. They, no one sympathises with their actions. And people are losing support on this because they're just, you don't block the press. You don't go, block and, and by the way, they didn't block all the press, can we just say. They just did the right wing, the mail, the telegraph, and the sun, which just shows the agenda behind this, you know, the socialism behind that. If you're really going to, I mean, the Daily Mirror, uh, a couple of uh, months ago, released a thing saying that Extinction Rebellion were bad and their views behind it are losing sympathy for the cause of climate change. They didn't go and block them because it's a left-wing media publication. I just think that that's, Behind they, they, they're blocking the streets, you know, ambulances not being able to go through, they're uh, blocking the roads, uh, are, that's, so uh, the emissions uh, of sitting cars is worse than actually loads of cars on the road. Um, and our good friend of the podcast, Mr. Tom Harwood, has been out there doing fantastic pieces of journalism uh, and actually uh, you know, holding people to account now, which is great. And it really is raising awareness that these actual the aims of these people aren't are going to lose support for the real issue of climate change. You know, 300 arrests uh, over the last week, which is just unbelievable, is that people are damaging properties and really just not caring about... Right. Well, I, I would say I would say in response to that that I don't think Tom Harwood's journalism is that fantastic. He's basically just antagonising people and, like, not being good. good but he's raised awareness to it. No, but, he, but he's, there's something that the press aren't getting is that ambulances were stopped. Traffic uh, was building up. How is traffic building up good for the environment? Can I just ask that? Well, it, it, it's, it, it's not. And I think that obviously there is a small minority of the protests who are likely to be causing trouble like that. But that's the kind of thing that shouldn't be raised awareness to because the actual wider issue is much more important than that. It's the same when student tuition fee demonstrations, you know, there were small pockets of violence and disruption there. When the actual wider issue of students paying massive fees what about, uh, is actually really important. Albert, what about former spokesperson for the uh, Extinction Rebellion, Zion Light, who actually left the group uh, in, to support uh, nuclear uh, power and nuclear energy? Well, it's... it's which is... It's and, you know, and I say her reason behind it was is that... Mm that she didn't believe in the well firstly she wants to follow the science behind it and when people come on saying there'll be over a billion deaths for climate change which is not supported by science um and she well, what, and said that. for me it, yeah. it's looking like people are just making stuff up to this for this agenda which they're trying to push across which is trying to enforce for me it's trying to push through a socialist regime which is obviously never well, against support when you're blocking what, the freedom of the press yeah yeah, yeah. No, what i would say to that is that extinction rebellion is a lot like the kind of Black Lives Matter movement in that it's a very broad ranging idea so you know when you say I support Extinction Rebellion you're saying like I support the idea that climate change is something that should be made awareness of you know I don't think you necessarily have to agree with every single principle and I also think it's something that is more cross-party like you know I know like Black Lives Matter get a lot of flack for like trying to destroy capitalism and stuff like that but it's not like you know, that's a very small group of them. It's not like a wider thing. So I think Extinction Rebellion is the same. There may be a small amount of disruptive people, but the vast majority of the people are people who are really concerned about this and think it's an important issue. 
but but the issue is with yeah sorry sorry yeah go on i think i mean the main thing i'd ask though because both of you and i'm not saying i agree with everything they do or even their approach necessarily but what i'd say is what what would you do if you were them really because the fact is that you know like i say because it is just it's so similar to coronavirus this the response to climate change is just so much smaller and we're living through coronavirus we know just because something you could ignore it three months ago or actually more than is it seven months ago now we're ignoring it seven months ago and now it has dominated our lives absolutely dominated and climate change will be exactly the same so whilst politicians ignore it what what can you do because no one's going to vote for the green party or, or whatever realistically to or green policies even because it is a lot easier to just ignore something and enjoy economic like boosts whilst they last that are against the environment so what can you actually do but, because i can't yeah. no i get i get that other says but no one's going to support a a group which are blocking uh, right-wing press because they don't agree with the views uh blocking ambulances uh, making traffic on purpose climbing on top of electric tube lines to stop people getting to work that's just what does this cause it's, it's just anarchy it's not this is not causing sympathy for their cause and what i'm saying is the what they're what they're behind and what they believe in is fundamentally it is accurate and it needs supporting but there's ways of going about it i completely understand what you're saying honestly you make a very very good point but there is they need to think and figure out other ways to do it how did the um stop brexit campaign get such support behind it yes it was it had an issue which people supported but it's because it didn't go out and cause anarchy they did mass marches which is the way to do it and that's the way that gathers support in this country anarchy never ever has never ever gathered support in this country well what can, can i just in I, I do i agree with you to say but I, I i think that one tactic that it would be a good idea is to try and target companies that are yes. bigger polluters like black uh, you know blockading these companies and targeting them individually and i think still parliament is something that should be targeted and oh, having protests Having protests in Parliament Square is not a problem. It's more when they're blocking off everyday traffic and random streets like that that is more so disruptive. what about this week when they blockaded, tried to blockade Parliament? So it's not let them out. Well, I, I say a protest around Parliament is good in the sense of Parliament are the ones who can do a lot about it. But there are also a lot of companies that could do a lot better. It's com- I think companies have got to be. companies got to do it. There's, there's actually very little restrictions on regulations, shall I say, on on companies when it comes to emissions and climate change. To, you know what they can prevent. Companies have the power to do that. And yeah, but also, it. but also, government should should force them to do it. Because well, that's it, the thing. Well, well, that's where we yeah, disagree. I believe that. They, I believe that hinders the progress of capitalism, which means obviously that's... Yeah, but well, that's the good thing in order to prevent, you know climate emergency because if you actually care about it have a crypt no but it doesn't but yeah but, you know no, but you don't need fantastic to it was a fantastic no, article it's a fantastic article in the a fantastic article in the telegraph today which uh, really summed up is that a lot of companies are ahead of of climate change there's only so much that you know uh, medium to small companies can do and they're actually doing a lot uh, to do it you know this government has done uh, you know they're getting the 10p the banks are going up to a mandatory 10p charge uh, in march uh, you know they've reduced uh, the amount of plastic in the you know in this country down to such low levels uh, i think that the government needs to do more definitely but the way that extinction rebellion have gone about this is absolutely a sham it really is and it's anarchy and it, they've broken so many laws and i'm glad there's been 300 arrests i really am i hope they do get serious serious set or a sentence or a, ma- a major fine to really deter away and make sure they change their ways of, of pushing away their message pushing their message to the people because certainly i know that the ordinary person down the pub will not support the extinction rebellion you know when they're like this it's 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 wrong it's absolutely bang out of order
well, I do disagree with that, but I don't know whether well, we've got any time to tackle everything. Well, I mean, we, we've obviously... We've got, we've got time to tackle everything. Well, we've got... Exactly. But, we, but we've got three of us here, you know, who are young people with different political views. But we've got someone joining us who is an expert, I would say, in, uh, in green energy, in, in supporting, you know, green policies. And that is the one and only Nat- Baroness Natalie Bennett, uh, leader, former leader of the Green Party. And she is joining us now. We did an interview with her. Um, and I, I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. Well, we are joined here by the one and only Natalie Bennett, Baroness Natalie Bennett, shall I say, um, the former lead of the Green Party. Uh, well, Natalie, you need no introduction. Our listeners know who you are uh, from your time in politics. Natalie, how are you doing? Very well, thank you very much in these difficult times, although thinking of so many people around the world struggling with COVID-19, struggling with the fires in America, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult world, but um, we've got to try and make it a better one. Well, absolutely. And our, our listeners uh, are in, engaged in politics, are cross-party listeners. We've got uh, people from the, uh, the left-hand side and the right-hand side of politics as well. Um, but we just want to know, you know, get to know you, Natalie, and understand uh, you know, what you've done in politics. You've done such great things in politics, and we're just looking forward to understanding uh, what you've done. So uh, just first question, uh, so why did you get involved in politics, and especially the Green Party? Um, well, it sort of depends where you draw the line of this. You know, there's a long history and a short history. The long history is that I became a feminist at age five when I was told, because you're a girl, you're not have, allowed to have a bicycle. Um, and so feminism was my first politics and pretty well informed a lot of my life as a journalist, as a volunteer working for the National Commission on Women's Affairs in Thailand. Um, The Green Party and the more party political and directly political um, in terms of sort of uh, elections, etc. started on the 1st of January 2006. Um, So I'm a a New Year's resolution green. And that was, there was a practical point to that, which is I just stopped working nights. And so I actually had the chance to get involved with organisations which hadn't really existed before. When you work nights, you just on a different schedule to the rest of the world. But also in January 2006, I took a look around at the state of the world both environmentally and socially and thought this is really a right mess and I should do something about it um, and so I joined the Green Party with absolutely no expectation of where it would end up leading me. <laughs> yeah definitely and, and, and from on there you know you went on to become the leader of the Green Party in 2012. Uh, what would you say you're the, what, what are you aiming for when you became leader of the Green Party? What motivated you to, uh, to take the, the helm? Well, my stated aim was to make us one of the major parties, you know, a significant player on the national political stage. Um, And, you know, I think it was a huge struggle and it remains a huge struggle with our undemocratic um, electoral system. But I was able to be there in 2015 in the leader debates. The Green Party got 1.1 million votes in that selection, which was more votes than we got in every previous general election added together. And you, when I look at what's happening now, I, I was quite pleased to see, you know, after we doubled our number of local councillors in the 2019 um, council elections in one, one go, which no other political party's done in modern history, um, I was seeing, you know, some surveys of councillors. And for the first time, we're seeing the green group of councillors included in those surveys. So I think, you know, obviously would love to have gone a lot further, but I think, you know, broadly that aim was achieved. Mm. Uh, why do you think the, um, yeah, the Green Party did so well in, in the council elections, would you say? I, I think what's happening is, is um, I think there's two sides of that. One, there's the public focus on the urgency of the, the climate emergency and the nature crisis 
and the fact that our whole system currently isn't working and we're the people who talk about really doing things differently you know at the local level as well as the national level but there's also the fact that in some ways that was a sort of continuation of the effects of 2015 because a lot of the people who became our councillors in that election a lot of the people who ran campaigns got involved were people who joined in 2015 it sort of took a couple of years for people to find their feet for the systems to to get going you know our membership is, is still around about the 50,000 mark and so that's given us resources to support campaigns so you know this is a you know, politics never operates in a straight line, but this is really a story of continuing upward focus on our issues, on on an understanding that you know, we cannot continue the way we are now. You know, and this was evident even before COVID, these elections were before COVID, that our current system is broken and COVID has really just exposed things rather than, um, you know, being a cause of so many of the problems we're seeing now. Uh, absolutely, I 100% agree. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the, you know, the current Conservative government and even the Conservative government for the past uh, 10 years, what do you think they've uh, failed on uh, when it comes to uh, climate change and the climate crisis? Oh, I mean, you know, where have they, they succeeded? Where can you start? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think... Um, uh, you know, they have, okay, to find something positive to say, to be charitable, uh, we're talking on a Friday afternoon, um, <laughs> they have continued what was already a trend of the moving away from coal for electricity generation, um, and, you know, Britain has been at the forefront of that, and even has, you know, shown low global leadership on that, so if we're looking for, for a credit point, um, that's it. I'm struggling to find another one. Um, you know, where they've failed is, um, you know, if you look at the progress reports that the, um, the Independent Committee on Climate, on the Climate Change Act, formed after the Climate Change Act, the Independent Committee on Climate Change, um, its recent progress report to Parliament, which was a couple of months ago, and we still haven't had the government reaction to it. Um, you know, all of the main areas of emissions, um, we're doing best on electricity generation, but we're still not doing nearly as well as we could be. And for example, you know, we've had an utterly senseless, pointless ban on onshore wind, which is now one of the cheapest forms of electricity generation. It's costing everyone on average 50 pounds a year on their electricity bills because they were basically catering to the UKIP slash Brexit party ideology by banning onshore, effectively banning onshore wind. Um, if you look at housing, you know, it's an absolute tragedy and a disaster that, this new um, Green Homes Grant, which is coming in, we're going to start this month, is the first time there's been any government money going into home energy efficiency um, in a decade. And that's a tragedy of a lost decade, plus the fact that we're still building housing, housing stock that needs to immediately be refurbished. So disastrous on housing, um, disastrous on transport. You, uh, we've seen a continued focus on they're still you know, building new roads in the middle of the climate emergency. Um, they've failed to really support uh, particularly local buses. That's the really crucial thing. We've seen an absolute collapse in local bus services. And then when we come to food and farming, which is a particular area of interest of mine, we have a hugely unhealthy diet produced in ways in the countryside that um, trashes the nature um, and produces huge amounts of climate emissions. So, you know, some successes on electricity, total fails everywhere else. Mm. No, see, yeah, because, you know, when we see it, uh, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a conservative myself, but I'm a social uh, liberal. I, I 
100% are believing climate change and the climate crisis. And what you said there is makes so much sense. They need to be doing more definitely when it comes to uh, the climate change, especially now when we're at a, such a pinnacle point uh, where we need to start doing more. And, um, you know, what would you say is when you became leader of the Green Party, you know, at a time when climate change needed to be more awareness needs to be raised. What would you say your uh, best achievements were in the in the four years you were leader of the party? Well, I think my aim, and I think this is a, is an ongoing work in progress. I would in no way claim to have achieved it. I think, but I think we have gradually progressed over time to an understanding that it's not a case of that we have to give things up, and you know it means making sacrifices to ca tackle the climate emergency and the nature crisis. I mean, first of all, you know, to quote a very old, I think it was originally a Thatcherite play, phrase, there is no alternative. But also what we've been doing um, is we've been trashing the planet and creating a hideously unequal, insecure society with um, an epidemic of mental ill health, you know, so much insecurity in terms of people's housing, um, you know, people forced to move from one short-term rental to another short-term rental, paying far more than they can afford in rents. Um, so many people in zero hours contract minimum wage jobs. You know, we've been trashing the planet and creating a miserable society. Um, and tackling climate change is actually a huge opportunity to tackle all of those other issues. You know, the, the, the sort of hashtag, the, uh, the slogan is system change, not climate change. And that system change is desperately needed for social as well as um, uh, environmental reasons. And, you know, when I first started doing public meetings and, you know, I've literally done hundreds and hundreds of public meetings up and down the country. And now I do hundreds and hundreds of public meetings on Zoom. Um, but, um, you know, the first couple of years, there was always someone who'd, who'd sort of, you know, take a really sceptical air and go, well, you just want everyone to live in caves and wear hair shirts, don't you? <laughs> um, uh, that was usually after I'd just been rabbiting on for five minutes about home insulation and energy efficiency. But, um, you know, I don't really encounter that anymore. And, you know, things like air pollution, the Greens Party was you know, talking about air pollution when I joined it in 2006. And now everyone's talking about air pollution. So on so many things, you know, the Greens have led and others have followed. But what's traditionally happened is it's taken kind of about 10 years for that to happen. You know, we started talking about making the minimum wage a real living wage. Um, George Osborne conceded the principle, if not delivered the fact, when he tried to call the minimum wage the living wage, even though it actually isn't. But, you know, there was a real political victory in there. So we've had lots of political victories. We've got over that claim that, um, you know, dealing with the environment means sacrificing things that, about people's lives and people's well-being, um, but it's still a work in progress, and there's still a long way to go. Mm, absolutely, and you know, you said about this, uh, you know, the Green Party leading and people following. I just want to uh, talk to you about Extinction Rebellion because a lot of our uh, listeners and people who follow us on social media are having civilized debates at the moment. You know, as we've got right and left-wing uh, followers, we want to. There are debating of Extinction Rebellion. Some agree, some disagree. What are your thoughts on the the actions? of Extinction Rebellion over the past uh, 10 months or so? Yeah, well, the Green Party has always believed that you, know, when you cannot get the government to listen, to react, to do the things it should do, non-violent direct action you know, has always been an essential part of social progress. The obvious one to cite is, of course, the suffragettes. Um, but you know, to pick a couple of more recent examples, if you look at fracking, um, huge numbers of people over uh, many years Put themselves put their body on the line you know i was at preston new road doing doing um welfare support for someone who'd locked on 
great bravery and courage. You know, she'd locked on at something like 1am in the morning and I was still there at 4pm 4, 4 uh, the following afternoon, um, talking to her, supporting her, ensuring that the police were, as they were cutting her out, were behaving appropriately. Um, and, you know, people who did that ensured that we didn't have a fracking industry in the UK. Uh, and that's a positive for the environment. Uh, it's a positive for both, you know, in terms of global emissions, but also for local communities. Um, and it's also, I would argue, an, an economic um, uh, excellent result because if you look at, you know, fracking in the US is increasingly being exposed as just a giant Ponzi scheme. Um, and the other one, just to mention, you know, I live in Sheffield and the Save Sheffield Trees campaign. Again, literally thousands of people in the city involved, people getting arrested, people putting themselves on the line. After a long struggle, the council basically conceded it was entirely wrong, and they've now jointly agreed with residents a tree strategy that you know is is really and got the whole issue of street trees and their importance to human well-being right on the agenda. So there's two recent case studies where you know, really positive results could only be achieved by nonviolent direct action. Mm, absolutely, and uh, you know the the actions of. Extinction Bay over the past uh, couple of uh, days, shall I say, in the last week or so, uh, you know, they've, they've definitely gained uh, the media attention. But would you say that you know, they, they, um, they damage the, sort of the message that's going across? They don't get people on side? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it was interesting. Um, oh, gosh, it feels like a very long time ago now, but I suppose it was about nine or ten months ago or, um, when, when, when they essentially sort of shut down central London. Um, and I actually went and did a debate with Tortoise Media while that was happening. And it was really interesting because, you know, Tortoise Media is a fairly you know, um, politically mixed group of people who follow it and get involved in it and go to their thinkings. And at this thinking, there were some people who were actually going, Wow, you know, um, I found that actually, you know, walk, walking into the office um, and, and the streets are lovely and, and they, they, there's no fumes and, you know, wow, this is showing how, how life can be really different. Um, and so people you might have expected to be, um, to, be, to be opponents, to be, you know, potentially even angry about this. It had really given them a chance to see that other ways of doing things were possible and they, they really appreciated that. Yep. Yeah, uh... Albert, have you got a, uh, a question for us? I know you've got uh, an interesting one lined up, which, we, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, um, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned actually about being part of the leadership debates in 2015. Uh, so I was just going to ask like, what it was like to take part in that, because it's such a you know, big stage up against you know, the political heavyweights of the country. I just wonder what it was like to be part of that. It was, it was, of course, a fascinating, amazing and fairly scary experience. Um, I will admit, actually, after the, after the first one, um, when I, I got back to my dressing room and I sort of said, I would really like a glass of wine at this point. Um, <laughs> and and they, they tried to, the, the, the executives, the TV executives sort of said, oh, you'll have to come up to the, to, the, um, to the bar and, you know, have a drink with all of us. And I was like, very nice man who, who was sort of the guard on my door and I said I really like that glass of wine and he went and found me a glass of wine so you know I really appreciated that but it was interesting because as soon as I get into a debate as soon as I got into it you know I wasn't nervous it didn't worry me at all because I just love that cut and thrust um, and you know one of the interesting things was particularly in the first well in the first one with David Cameron he was clearly very very nervous um, uh, poor old Ed Miliband was just <laughs> been so trained and so turned into a puppet of stage that he kind of didn't move a finger without it having been rehearsed, which was really quite painful to watch. 
Um, mm -hmm. Nicola Sturgeon was, of course, very strong. And, you know, Nigel Farage, the first one, had very clearly come from the pub and he arrived very, <laughs> he arrived very, very late and, and the poor um, TV officials and producers and everything were totally panicking because he arrived at the absolute last minute. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of stories to be told about that. And, you know, one of these days I might publish the memoirs and there might be a few more in that. I mean, that is, it's absolutely fascinating. That. And just, just on that, you know, because I, I remember when I was watching the debate and beforehand, you weren't actually initially invited, were you, to uh, one of the leadership debates? And it just shows how far the, you know, the Green Party uh, have come since then, that you know, they're a party that everyone knows now, when actually back then there was sort of a, a, a furore that's, that raised from uh, the Green Party not being invited. Exactly. And, you know, the hashtag was invite the Greens. And we had lots of people supporting that, even who um, weren't necessarily... Um, you know, weren't necessarily ever going to vote Green, but they just thought this is a political perspective that needs to be represented. And one of the interesting things, it was actually a, um, a German journalist um, from a very serious German newspaper who interviewed me at length after, after the election, who, who, or actually sometime after the election, um, who made a very interesting point because he said the fact that there was the three of us there, um, Nicola, Leanne and myself, with the anti-austerity message, you know, it would have been very difficult for me had it just been me without the other two as well. Um, but the three of us together really you know, helped to kill the austerity idea and you very much were part of the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. And I think, I think that's true and it's interesting, you know, just being able to demonstrate that that was a significant force in British politics, that, you know, the, the Blairite neoliberal consensus, which had dominated with the largest parties um, since Thatcher, um, really, it had to be challenged, and, and us being there was an important part of challenging that. Mm. And and now, for, for on just on saying that, you know, now that you know, Keir Starmer is is leader of, of the Labour Party, do you think that the Blairite return of Labour would mean that more votes will come back to the Green Party, which Corbyn may have had uh, for the past couple of years? Well, I think I mean I think that's kind of inevitable anyway, in the sense that um, you know, politics. Um, sorry, some people who are listening to this probably won't like this, but I believe that the centre of politics is entirely dead. And that's one of the reasons explained why the Lib Dems have got nowhere in recent Absolutely. years. Because centrist politics implies leaving things much as they are. And it's patently obvious to everybody that you know, we are in a broken system. COVID has only exposed that fact. Um, and you know, we need to build a society that works for people, that gives people secure homes, that gives people a healthy life, healthy air to breathe, healthy food to eat. Um, we need to give people you know, work that respects them, gives them security. And what we've got now is not doing any of those things. So leaving things much the same as they are isn't an option. So what you have is really you have, I would say, you know, our side of politics broadly defined, people who say we need to ensure that everybody has a decent life while we live within the physical limits of this one planet. And then you've got the far right, uh, with which I include the government, um, who say, oh, it's a difficult, dangerous world, so we've got to grab what we can for us and ours and shove those others away, whoever those others are. You know, if you're Donald Trump, build walls to keep them out. And so politics is splitting between those two, two sides. And, you know, a centrist middle of the road, don't upset the apple cart, don't say anything. You know, we've been through that before with Ed Miliband and it didn't work out well. People want a vision of, want you to have a vision of this kind of future. Just waiting for the keys to number 10 to fall into your lap doesn't have a great history. No, and absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the cause that you and the Green Party are fighting is something which will gain a lot of traction. I believe that will gain a lot of traction, especially with the crisis coming into the forefront of, of British politics now in, in policies. Uh, and obviously now you are a 
uh, Baroness, you're in the House of Lords, Natalie. What is it like being in the House of Lords? Because you know, we haven't had a Lord on the, on the, on the podcast yet as an, on an episode. What's it like being, being a Lord in the, in the House? Well, obviously, in many ways, lots of the archaic, um, you know, ceremonial and terminology is very, very strange. I would have to say that strange is my first adjective. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting reasonably good at getting calling bishops the right reverend prelate and all those <laughs> sorts of things. Um, but I was only reflecting with someone this morning, actually talking to an NGO. I mean, the practical reality now is it is actually an amazingly exciting time to be in the Lords because um, the Commons is so weak, despite the fact that only 44% of people voted Tory, more or less the, uh, the government has full control of the House. Um, in, it's in the, the House of Lords where the real resistance lies. You know, it was one of the things that um, the current controversy about the internal market uh, bill and um, breaking international law, one of the first phrases that was being repeated all around the place was, oh, it'll never get through the Lords. Um, and so the Lords really is now the opposition. And, and you know, one of the things that I've been, you might even say lecturing, I try not to drop too lecturing a tone, but lecturing the noble Lords in the House on is that um, you know, they have to be the representatives for the climate strikers. They have to be the representatives for the 56% of people who didn't vote Tory because they just don't have proper representation in the Commons. And the Lords is the more democratic, more representative house, weirdly enough, um, because um, the majority of the country didn't vote Tory and the Tories don't have a majority in the House of Lords. Balance of power rests with the crossbenchers. So, you know, as I say to them, there's a huge responsibility on them to actually represent the country because we currently have a political system that's not a democracy and we're actually the most democratic bit of it, weirdly. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask as well. So in I know in a lot of other countries in Europe, uh, Green parties have seen like gaining votes. Uh, and I know obviously you're no longer the leader of the party, but what do you think the party has to do to kind of increase its support uh, in the coming elections? Uh, so, yeah, what do you think the future of the Green Party in the UK is? Well, I would say that our support is probably reflects broadly in the same ballpark as what it is across Europe. And I can demonstrate that from the last democratic elections held in the UK, which was the European elections, um, in which um, we got 12% of the vote. Um, that was a vote in elections in which everyone knew more or less that their vote would count. Um, that didn't apply in a couple of regions. So, you know, I think you should probably put our fair measure of our support around the country at somewhere around the 15% mark. That doesn't translate into general elections because when it comes to the crunch point, you know, people go, oh, well, I've got to vote for the people who I don't really want to keep out the people who I really hate. Um, and that's what happens in general elections. But, you know, our level of support at around, I would say about 15% is broadly reflective of what we have across most of the rest of Europe. All we need to have is a voting system that um, allows people to reflect that. Or alternatively, of course, just because Labour and Tory have been the two largest parties for a century doesn't mean that's necessarily going to continue. Um, you know, I think the Tory party is extraordinarily fragile. Um, the Labour party is pretty fragile too. Um, as I was reflecting in the House uh, last week, I know this week, um, you know, what we have are three part the three largest parties represent 19th century or earlier political philosophies. They're very old and very tired and they just don't have answers anymore. So, you know, I'm working for the first Green government. Um, the obvious way to get that would be through a constitutional reform and a fair voting system, but maybe we'll get it, uh, the first one through our current system and then, then we can fix it. 
Absolutely. I mean, I know a lot of our viewers will definitely support a Green Party government. It's it's certainly some of the policy, especially when it comes to climate crisis, is needed urgently. And the the terminology at the moment is is climate change, Natalie. But does that accurately reflect the current situation we're in? Would you say that the term emergency and crisis needs to be used more commonly uh, rather than the term climate change? I think if you, if you went through and, and did an analysis, I've used the, the, word, the words climate emergency virtually every time. I mean, that's my standard term. I will occasionally, if I'm talking about the Committee on Climate Change or something, of course, use the term for a particular, uh, particular technical point. But you know, if you look at what's happening um, in you know, America, um, you look at what's happening around the world. You look at the climate records that just keep tumbling and tumbling and t- the weather records just keep tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. What's happening with Antarctic ice. You know, this clearly is an absolute emergency state. We need to stay below um, that 1.5 degree level of um, increase above pre-industrial levels. Where actually, you know, I've seen some predictions that say we might hit 1.4 within a couple of years which is terrifying, we've utterly got to turn things around. But one of the things that I think comes out of COVID is that we've recognised that things, the way the world works, the way people work, um, the way businesses work can change with great speed. Um, this, you know, we're used to as Greens, you know, we went into the last election saying we need to be net zero carbon by 2030. And, you know, we got sort of patronising pats on the head from people saying, oh, you know, you just want to change things so fast, but the world's not like that. You just go really patient. You know, even 2050 is really ambitious. But actually, you know, we've seen with COVID that when you recognise an emergency, when people see this needs to be done, you can just change the whole way the world works with great speed. And so that's something that we need to take into to focusing on the climate emergency as we continue to deal with it with COVID. Mm, absolutely, 100% agree on that. And, uh, you know, finally, Natalie, most of our listeners are students, uh, you know, students who are concerned about the climate, but also, you know, the conservatives, liberals, uh, socialists as well. But what would be your message that what we can do as, as concerned you know, young people, what can we do to help uh, the current situation? Well, my top line message, and this is something when I go into schools, colleges and universities, and also just everything really, is that you need to make politics what you do not have done to you. And if people, you know, leave listening, finish listening to this uh, podcast with one message, you know, I'm going to repeat it, make politics what you do not have done to you. And that can be, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to, I mean, I certainly hope you'll vote, but it doesn't mean you have to stand for election or join a political party. I would define politics as getting together with the people around you, whether they're friends, classmates, work colleagues, neighbours, whoever they are, um, getting together with people and saying, you know, I don't like the way this is operating. Can we work out a way to change it? And that can be everything from, you know, starting a campaign on your street to get a pedestrian crossing um, so kids can get to the park safely through to you know, starting a campaign at a university to get rid of all single-use plastics or to ensure that um, the top paid person in a university isn't paid more than 10 times the lowest paid person. A really good one to do if, if you're appointing a new vice chancellor or, or similar role. Um, you know, by doing that, then you will learn about politics, learn how to make a difference, learn how to see that things can be changed. And you know, people often ask me, how can I get into politics? And of course, you know, you can study politics and do courses and all the rest of it. 
But I think the best way to, to prepare yourself to be involved in politics is by doing politics and that hands-on learning is absolutely crucial. And, you know, I was talking about the far right. What they want, what Boris Johnson wants, is a powerless, cowed, um, demoralised population that feels like, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. Things are really bad. Things are really difficult. We've just got to wait for someone to ride up on a white horse and rescue us. That's the classic far right approach. Our approach is to empower people, to get people engaged, to help people to make a difference themselves at all kinds of levels, in all kinds of ways. And you, people sometimes say, oh, should I start from the grassroots basis and you know, change things, join transition towns, campaign at the university, or should I go for the, for the big stuff? You know, let's go for all of it and together, collectively, build something different. We have to do that, but it's a huge opportunity as well as all of the threats that we're facing. Absolutely. And that's such a powerful mission. I'm so glad you brought up the uh, Boris Johnson thing because that it's, you hit the nail on the head, definitely. It's definitely a, a, a white horse, you know, saviour. Sadly, he's going to be coming in clown shoes and a red nose rather than on a white horse. Um, but no, that's such a powerful message, Natalie. And, and everything you said today is, is broad and hopefully that our listeners have understood what the you know, more about the climate change and the climate crisis and how to get involved uh, to definitely change something because you have changed the, the message on, climate, on the climate crisis and the climate emergency here in, in Britain. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the, the podcast, Natalie. It's been a yeah, huge honour for us and thank you for, for coming on. Thanks very much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I'm on social media, particularly Twitter, at Natalie Ben. So anyone got any further questions, feel free. I do my best to always respond to that. Yeah, okay. follow Natalie Bennett on Twitter at Natalie Ben. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Natalie. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Natalie Bennett. Or we certainly did. It was fantastic to have her on the podcast. A huge honour for us. And But now it goes into round four of the Red Ken Cup. Currently 2-1 to Odysseus. He has really taken it home here. He's shocked him. He's a reigning champion. He's really taken it here. But this is a big one this week. We are playing a game of higher or lower. And before I say what the theme is, obviously, Albert, you lost last week, so you get to choose if you go first or second. I'm going to go first, please. That's okay. Go first. Well, that's fine. So the, the, uh, the theme is we're going, to go, we're going to go big this time, big. So it's very specific. It is, we're going to go to Ohio in America, and it's usually the state – that the, the way Ohio goes is the way the country goes when it comes to US elections. So, higher or lower on the percentage of winning of, of who wins Ohio, which president wins Ohio, uh, what percentage they get in of the vote in Ohio. So, obviously, higher or lower. So, we're going to start in 1988. George H.W. Bush got a percentage, 55% of the vote in Ohio. Albert, did Bill Clinton in 1992 get higher or lower than 55%? I'm going to say uh, lower. Well, he got 40% of the vote. Uh, and that is because uh, we, there was three candidates actually standing uh, at the uh, time. Uh, yeah. Ross Perot got 20% of the vote. Uh, uh, a good one there. So, Albert, you take the lead on there. Uh, so, over to you. What I'll say is 1996, Bill Clinton, the incumbent. Did he get higher or lower than 40%? Higher. Higher. Well, he did, 47%. And that's because Ross Perot stood again, but he only got 10% of the vote this time. So there we go. It's 1-1. One, one. So over to you, Albert. George W. Bush, 2000, won the election, won Ohio. 
but did he get higher or lower than 47% of the state? I'm going to say he did get higher. Well, he got 49.97% of the vote. Saying obviously there's against Al Gore, who for me was my president. He did win. Justice for Al Gore uh, out there. (laughs) Just for Al Gore. Over to you, what it says. 2004, George W. Bush again. Second term, he wins. He wins Ohio. Does he get higher than 49.97% of the vote? I have no idea. Um, but, I mean, higher? Ooh, it is higher. It is. It's higher. 50.81%. Just, just beats oh, John Kerry in there. So, over to you, Albert. 2008, the first African-American president, Barack Obama, won. He won the state of Ohio. Now, 50.81% from George W. Bush. Barack Obama, higher or lower, against John McCain, a hero of US politics. May he rest in peace. I'm, I'm going to go. I think he will have got just a bit higher, maybe like 51, 52%, but I'm going to go higher. Well, Albert, to keep you in this, you need this. You need this. And it was fifty-one point five. Oh, so you to say, this is going down. This is going oh. all the way. So, over to two thousand twelve. Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney was reasonably oh, popular, decent candidate. Favorite. But did Barack Obama get higher in a, in a higher vote percentage in the state of Ohio than two thousand eight, where he got fifty-one point five? Was it higher or lower, Odysseus? Is this, has this been about the state of Ohio? I thought it was the general. No, state of Ohio. Oh. I said that very beginning. So you got oh. to understand. Whoever wins the state of Ohio wins the election. Uh, wait, so do you get higher than 51? 51.5. I seem to remember. I, I could be wrong, but I thought that Obama did a lot. He was a lot more comfortable than Mitt, against Mitt Romney than people thought was higher. Well, he got 50. 0.67. It is lower. He got lower in the state of Ohio, which means that to win this, to win it, to win, let's make it 2-2. Albert, you've got a match point here. A match point. Well, you've won anyway, actually. I oh, know you don't know. Oh, there's one more for Ollie, but you've got to get this one right. Here we go. 2016, okay. my president, Donald Trump, did he get higher than 50.67? I'm going to say he did get higher. I think he got about 51 or something like that. Well, we're taking it to the next round. I mean, next week it's 2-2 it's because it is 51.31%. Uh, it's Albert gets a storming 4-2 right. today in the record cup. It goes 2-2. We're getting, oh, it's, it's, keeping it, it's keeping it exciting. This and is with, a, with four keeping more, the viewers hooked. With four more episodes to go. Uh, no, five more episodes to go. It's, it's going all the way before the finale, which I've got a big surprise for the finale of the Red Ken Cup. Albert, I'll you watch your back because there might be someone coming for your title very, very soon. Oh. And on that bombshell, we would like to say thank you to Albert Odysseus. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you to Natalie Bennett as our guest this week. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Next week, we've got a huge guest in British politics. Keep an eye on our social medias. We'll be putting a few drops in there for the big reveal. He's massive, isn't it, guys? I'm very much looking forward to it. A massive person in, in British politics. So I hope you enjoy that. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you all later. 